Good morning, everyone. Good morning. It is so, so good to be together this morning. Now, I know I wish I could say it is so good to see you this morning, but I can't see you. And I, I know that we all long to be together once again so we can actually see each other face to face. We can hear each other singing and encourage one another. And I know that day will come. But until then, I know that this time together is really, really special for all of us. So I want to welcome you to church this morning. Welcome. Now, if you aren't watching this live stream, maybe for the first time, or maybe you've been watching it since we've gone live in the past three weeks, I just want to extend, as I always do, a very, very warm welcome to you. We are so delighted to have you here with us, listening to God's words, singing together. And we're so grateful that you're taking part of your Sunday morning to spend it with us. So welcome to church this morning. If you don't know who I am, my name is Peter, and I'm one of the pastors here at Bradfield and Ruffin Baptist Church. People call us BRBC, and we are a church that loves Jesus together, and we want to help other people to do the same. So we're going to be talking a lot about Jesus this morning, so welcome. Now, we are jumping back into our series in John's Gospel on the seven signs that Jesus does in his Gospel. So I want to invite you, if you have a Bible with you, and you want to take that and open to John chapter 9 this morning. John chapter 9, James is going to be preaching on the whole passage, um, or the whole chapter, but we're just going to read the first paragraph, which is verses 1 to 7, and then the last paragraph, which is verse 35 to 41. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's absolutely fine. Um, the passage should appear over to my right, your left, in just a second. So again, that's John chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 1. John writes these words, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no, no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and he made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud, and he said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back, seeing. Then drop down to verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, the guilt remains. So over to James. Well, good morning, everyone, wherever, you, wherever you're tuning in from, wherever in the world, whatever household, whatever living room, on whatever device, it is great to have you with us. Now, you join us for our sixth part in our seven-part series called The Seven Signs of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And if you haven't been around for much of this series, let me just give you just a little bit of a snapshot of where we've been heading, or maybe how to understand this. 
Now, in the beginning of the New Testament, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, of jo- Luke and John. You may have heard about those before, but each of these four authors are giving a documentary or a biography of the life of Jesus. And their aim is the same, to show the reader who Jesus is, what he's come to do, and what it means for us. That's their aim. And so John's gospel does exactly that. And John does something unique in his telling of the life of Jesus, in that he includes uh, seven very specific signs, some miraculous, supernatural things that Jesus does. John includes seven. Now, he says at the end of his gospel, I could have included so much more, but I'll include these. And with each one of these, John is showing us something significant about Jesus. He's showing us something about who Jesus is, what he came to do, and why that's important. So let me show you how we need to be thinking about these signs. When we read them, we're not just looking at the event itself. So, for example, when we looked at when Jesus turned water into wine, we weren't just looking at the fact Jesus saved saved the face of the person who had organized the wedding. Jesus was saying something about a new era in history. So we have to read through it to see what's really being said underneath and inside of it with each of these signs. Let me give you an example. A lot of you know Narnia, right? The Chronicles of Narnia, written by C.S. Lewis. The most famous is going to be the second one, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And the story has captivated multiple, uh, multiple generations, young and old, love the story. But it tells a story of children who are evacuated from London as evacuees during the war, and they, they get sent away to the countryside, and they find this wardrobe in the house that they're living in. And the wardrobe is basically a portal into the mystical land of Narnia. And they then end up teaming up with Aslan to defeat the White Witch. Amazing story, but we know through this story, C.S. Lewis is saying something. He's making observations about the character of Christ in the character of Aslan. He's telling us something about the battle between good and evil. Something about, say, what it means to be a part of God's kingdom. So we see the story itself, but we look through to see the point that's being made. I mean, you could say the same is true for the famous, famous book called Jekyll and Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson. It's quite a disturbing story. It's quirky. It's weird. It unsettles us. And it's captivated a lot of people and is well known. But he's saying something underneath this. He's saying something about what resides within the human heart and what we're really like. So what we need to do is we see through. We're asking the point, what's really being said underneath this? And the same is true when we come to these signs in John. We're asking the question, wonderful what happens. We love this miraculous, these miraculous things that Jesus, Jesus is doing here. But we're asking ourselves the question, what is he saying? What's underneath this? What's the point being made? In John's gospel, there are seven of these signs. And we're looking at the sixth one. Now this one in John chapter 9 has got something to do with sight. Seeing. Now, when I say the word sight, you might think about the human eye. You think about how complex and intricate the human eye is and how amazing it is that we can perceive and see the world around us as light pours in and our retinas send the information to our brains and our brains perceive our world. Maybe you think about the gift of sight, the beauty of being able to see something, to see textures, to see a sunset, to see a landscape, 
to see an intricate butterfly that you can hold in your hand. Maybe you think about the beauty of sight. But, but this sign in John's gospel, it's about a deeper kind of a seeing. It's about a soul kind of a sight, a realization, an understanding, a, I get it, I see it. Now in this sign, we have a man who was born blind, who now sees. Jesus heals him, and then we have a, a lot of confusion, a lot of discussion, and a lot of investigation that follows. Now, we're not going to read through the whole chapter. You can do that in your own time. But as we go through this, I'm going to meander our way through the story, and we're going to meet the characters that respond to Jesus' healing. We'll see the disciples. They ask a question. Jesus heals. And then, kind of like a chaotic episode of a drama, everybody's trying to figure out what's going on. We're going to look out for themes of blindness and sight. Light and darkness, understanding and confusion, key things in this scene. And as we go through this, we need to be asking the question, just as we do have done with each of these signs, what does it mean? What should we be taking from this? What is John recording? And crucially, what's Jesus saying through this sign? And we'll see the responses of the people in this. So what I want to do, read our way through the story, just meander our way through, get a good grasp of what's going on, meet the people who have these diverse responses, and then ask our big question, what does this mean? And then bring it down to earth. Okay, well, let's have a look. Let's reread the first couple of verses here in the account. John chapter 9. As he, that's Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now you see what the disciples do. They look at this man's individual suffering and they try and come to an individual reason for that suffering. Maybe we find ourselves doing that sometimes. We look into the heartache and pain of something that's going on in our lives or someone else's. Well, I wonder what happened. I wonder who's responsible for this. Now, sometimes, sometimes individual suffering is caused for an, because of an individual reason or a bad choice somewhere. But we know that's not always the case. And we know from the rest of Jesus' ministry, he understands that we can't go around attaching reasons very quickly to cases of suffering. He understands something of the complexity of this. But Jesus does actually give a reason. And his response to the disciples is, well, well neither of those, but this. And he says it in verse 3, that the works of God might be displayed in him. So what Jesus wants to show them is that this man's experience is about to go down in history. And 2,000 years later, people like you and me are going to be reading about this. So here's what Jesus does. He then creates a, a, a kind of a pasty mud with his saliva and some mud he picks up from the floor and he rubs it on this man's eyes. Tells him to go and wash down at the pool of Siloam. And he does that and he comes back seeing. And then we have the responses and the chaos and the investigations unfold. So have a look at this. In verse 8, the first response. We see, we'll call them, we'll call them nosy neighbors because they seem to form a little committee or a conference, and they ask a big question, well, isn't this the guy we know? You know, he, was, he used to sit over there and beg. Don't we know him? And, and they're not unified in their responses. 
The, the first, res- one of the responses is, well, yeah, that, hi- that is him. That's definitely him. And, and some others are saying, no, but he does look like him. Have you ever found yourself thinking you've seen someone that you know? Maybe it's in the supermarket or somewhere in town. And you go to say hello to them and you suddenly catch yourself because you realize it's not them. You know, sometimes you see people at the back of someone, you see the back of their head and you're convinced it's someone else. I seem to do that all the time, especially at Berry Market. So, in fact, I'll end up saying, hey, how you do?" And then I'll suddenly realize, sorry, wrong person. Maybe that's something like that for the neighbors. Well, it does look like him, doesn't it? Now, they asked the formerly blind man, what's going on? And, and he's saying, it is me. Let me tell you what happened. And he recounts the story. But the neighbors aren't satisfied with this. So they drag him along to the religious leaders, the authorities, the Pharisees, to find out what these experts have to say. So we meet the second response here. We'll call them the finicky Pharisees, the religious leaders. So they ask the question to this man who now sees, so how did this happen? They're like detectives feeling extremely suspicious about this account that they're hearing. And this man who now sees, well, let me say it again then. And he tells them the story. But the Pharisees, like the neighbors, are divided on this. Some of them are saying, well, this can't be from God because it's the Sabbath and you don't work on the Sabbath and therefore this man made mud on the Sabbath so he's doing work on the Sabbath, therefore he must be a sinner so God can't do anything through him. It can't be him. And then other Pharisees are reasoning the other way. Well, then how can someone who is a sinner do something like this? So they turn back to the man who now sees, asking them in the question, so, so who is he then? And the man who now sees gives the best answer he can. Verse 17, he is, he says, he is a prophet. But they're not satisfied still. So they drag the parents in. The third party, the third response, we'll call them the petrified parents. They're so scared of the Pharisees, they're reluctant to say much. Is this your son, they ask? And the response of the parents really plainly is, yeah, but we don't know how he sees. Ask him. He is old enough. You ever got dragged in to go see the head teacher? I know I did, and I felt terrified. So scared, I wasn't really sure what to say, and I just spurted out short one-word answers. Maybe this is something like the parents, rabbits in headlights in front of the religious leaders, and we're left guessing what they might have said if they weren't so afraid. But no one seems to be making much ground here. So they go back to the man who now sees... And they accuse the one who healed him of being a sinner. And here we have the fourth party, the man who now sees his response. And he kind of responds to that accusation. Well, I, I don't know about that. But one thing I know, he says, and these are beautiful words, I was blind, but now I see. But how, the Pharisees are asking, how? Now you can feel the man who now sees beginning to get exasperated. I've already told you. How many times do you need to hear this? You know you've been on a journey in the car with your kids. The first 20 times they ask the question, are we there yet? You've modeled patience in every single response. But the 21st time, the temperature starts to rise a little bit. You feel exasperated. No, we're not there yet. How many times do I need to say this? Here's this man who now sees, who keeps retelling the story, but nobody gets it. The Pharisees voice their skepticism. They clearly do not want to see. They are blind to their blindness. Now this seeing man (laughs) thinks this is crazy. Verse 30, he says to them, why is this an amazing thing? 
Do you, not, you do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. It's almost as though he's questioning the fact that they don't even want to know. So the Pharisees boot him out of the synagogue, we're done with you. And then there's this amazing scene at the end of the passage where Jesus re-enters and has this conversation and essentially asks him the question, do you believe in the Son of Man? It's quite a leading question. So the man who now sees is like, well, who is he then? Jesus' response, it's me. And then he responds with, Lord, I believe, and he worships Jesus. Do you notice in this passage that you have this profound blindness of the Pharisees and then this clear sight of the man who now sees? But with the Pharisees, there's a deep spiritual blindness that will not recognize who Jesus is. But in the man who now sees, he can clearly perceive who Jesus is. You see, this man who now sees, he has not only received his physical sight, he also spiritually sees. Now remember, we were asking the question, what does this mean? That's our million pound question this morning. What's this sign all about? If we thread everything together in this chaotic, dramatic scene and these conversations and investigation, what does it mean? Well, the answer is it's got something to do with sight, but it's not a literal kind of a sight. What does this sign mean? Well, the answer is simple. But sometimes the simple things can land like a ton of bricks in our lives. The answer is this. Jesus gives sight. Jesus opens eyes. Now, I want to explore this a little bit, because we can talk about sight in terms of seeing something, literally seeing something. So, like, I can see the camera. I can see this room because there's lights on and sunlight is pouring through the window. Or we can talk about sight in terms of a perception of reality, understanding something. Something becomes real to us, or we say, oh, I get it now. You can do about seeing in those terms. Let, let me give you a illust- couple of illustrations here. When I was 16 years old, I seemed to switch off when it comes to school. I'd finished my GCSEs, heading off into A-levels, and I just wasn't motivated. And, and I just wanted to do my own thing. And you know what? At the end of my A-levels, after two years, my grades reflected my lack of input. But when I got to my early 20s, I, I looked back on my A-levels and recognized that a lot of the stuff would have been really useful. That's some amazing classes. I, I wish I'd applied myself a little bit more. And I kind of asked the people around me, why didn't you tell me to get my act together? And they're like, we did. Thousands of times we were telling you to wake up and snap out of it. What was the difference? Well, I didn't see. But in my early 20s, I get it. I perceive it. It makes sense to me. Here's another example. When, when I was a kid, I had this encyclopedia for kids. And there was a really cool geography section in it. And it had bits about people groups all over the world, countries, continents, and then a big bit about natural phenomena. And they devoted this whole page to the Grand Canyon. I'd love reading this page. They'd have a picture of tourists standing with their cameras on the edge. And then this big expanse of this canyon, miles wide. And, and there's some of the stats that would say, in some places it's a mile deep as the Colorado River snakes its way along the bottom. And I remember reading some of these statistics, and they had these speech bubbles from tourists saying, it took my breath away. It's absolutely amazing. I'm so grateful I got to see this. 
And I remember thinking to myself, well, I'll never get to see it. I guess it's the best I've got. But in my adult life, I found myself standing on the south rim of the Grand Canyon, absorbing something of the majesty that I saw in front of me, perceiving something of the, 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 the breadth of this phenomenon. And I found myself understanding what I had read in that book as a kid. I get it. It makes sense. I understand it. It's now real to me. So with the, the man who was formerly blind, he now sees. He then, in gaining his sight, his experience is, is a demonstration of the work of God in our lives. So, so he's like a microcosm, a template, a framework, an example of what it means for us to go from spiritual blindness to spiritual sight. Jesus opens eyes. I mean, he heals this man's eyes. And in so doing, Jesus is making a giant point. Reader, I have come to make you see. And he shows us. He shows us the work of God in our lives, of giving us the deepest heart and mind kind of a seeing, pouring in light. So we find ourselves in a place where we say, I get it. I see it now. But I've got a giant question we need to be asking at this point. Because we see this sign is about spiritual sight. Jesus has come to open eyes. But, but the giant question is, well, what is it that God opens our eyes to? Okay, he gives spiritual sight. This man sees. That's the point. Jesus helps us see. But what is it that we see? What is it that we say, it's real to me now? Well, I think from this passage, we see two key fundamental things that we see with spiritual sight. Firstly, we see ourselves clearly. And that's shown to us through the blindness of the Pharisees. And then we see God clearly. And we see that through the man who now sees. So spiritual sight is about seeing ourselves and seeing God clearly. So, so let's explore this. Seeing ourselves clearly. Now you see at the end of the passage... There's a really strange statement, a couple of statements Jesus says as he's talking with the man who now sees. And the man has just said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And in verse 39, Jesus, Jesus says something strange, but I think he's doing something incredibly interesting. He said, for judgment I came into the world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Verse 41. Jesus said to them, if you are blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. That was quite wordy and maybe hard to understand. But I think what Jesus is saying here is he's talking about something, something of a reversal. He's saying, look, can you see that those who think they see with absolute clarity are actually blind? And those who are blind and know that they are blind are then given eyes to see. And it's like Jesus is saying, my presence into the world has only compounded the blindness that the Pharisees have. It's the deepest kind of a blindness where they're blind to the fact that they are blind and are completely unwilling to admit that they are blind and they need Jesus to see. Now, this is true of the Pharisees all the way through. Jesus butts heads with them so often. And in just about every occasion, they don't see their need of him. 
They don't see their need of God. They don't see their need of mercy. They don't see their need of grace. They don't see, see their need of forgiveness. They spend their whole lives trying to, trying to make themselves right with God on the basis of their good behavior. But in the end, they're just on a treadmill that exhausts them and will never take them anywhere. You see, the Pharisees, in their blindness, are never in a place where they say, I need Jesus. I need God's grace. I need his mercy. I need his forgiveness. You see, what we see through the blindness of the Pharisees is to have clear spiritual sight, is to do what they don't do, to see what they don't see. And what's that? It's, come, it's to come to a place to recognize I am a sinner and I am in need of grace. This is the Pharisees in their blind. But they show us in their blindness what it means to see. What it means to see ourselves clearly, something they don't do. And that's to recognize I am a sinner and I'm in need of God's grace. You see, when we come to this place, some things will start to happen in our lives. Firstly, we'll admit that we need Jesus. Now, often when Quince and I, my wife Quince, when we're in the car and we have to drive somewhere that we've never been before, I'll look at it up on maps before we go. And she will say something to me. Do you want me to have maps open so I can tell you where I need to go? Nope. I've logged it in my head. I looked at maps at home. I saw the dot where we are and where we need to be. If I go in that direction, I remember those turns, then we'll get there. Now, there's been a couple of occasions where we have got lost, and I won't admit it. And she'll say, do you want me to get maps open? No, I said, I'm just going to turn right here, and I think it should start to make sense. Oh, maybe if I go left here, we might... No, that's a dead end. And you know what? I need to come to a place where I admit that I'm lost. Because until I come to a place where I admit that I need help, I'll never get to where I'm supposed to be going. And isn't that the Pharisees' problem? They never come to a place where they admit that they're lost, that they need Jesus. And so they can never see, they can never understand where they need to go. When we have spiritual sight, we see ourselves clearly. And when that happens, we admit that we need Jesus. Secondly, we quit the blame shifting. We stop blame shifting. You know, sometimes we, we, we spend our lives pointing at the problems of everyone else. You know, the problems with those, the problems with their system, the problems with those people. If those people just figure it out, you know what? The problems with her, the problems with him, the problems with them, the problems everywhere apart from me. But when we come to a place of spiritual sight, we say, no, 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 the, the problem's here too. Famous author G.K. Chesterton responded to a newspaper who kind of put out the question for the, for the readers to respond to, and they said, what's wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton responded with, dear sirs, and it's only two words, I am. Yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. Or, or maybe a quote from Alexander Solzhenitsyn in his famous book, The Gulag Archipelago, can help us here. He said, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate from them separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line of good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. You see, when we have spiritual sight, we see ourselves clearly. And when we see ourselves clearly, we recognize the issues in here too. And thirdly, what happens when we have spiritual sight and we see ourselves clearly, we come to a place of surrender. This is the place the Pharisees never get to. The Pharisees are always saying, we can do it in our own strength. If we keep the rules, if we behave properly, and by virtue of our good behavior, we can make ourselves acceptable in God's sight. 
You see, they never come to a place where they say we're sinners in need of God's grace. They never come to a place where they admit their blindness and therefore find that they are beginning to see. They never get there. But when we begin to, re- when we begin to realize and see ourselves because of spiritual sight, we come to a place where we say, the answer's not in me. The answer's not with my discipline and devotion. The answer's not going to be with my focus. The answer's not in here, however hard I try. The answer is in Jesus. The answer to my sin is in the cross of Jesus Christ. The answer to my satisfaction is knowing Jesus more. The answer to my issues, to my relation, whatever in my life, it's found in Jesus. And we come to that place of surrender. So we not only see ourselves clearly when in our spiritual sight, we begin to see God clearly. We begin to see God clearly. How do we know that? We see that from what this man now sees. Now remember, it's not just the receiving of physical sight that he experiences, it's spiritual sight. And we know that from his conversation with Jesus, when Jesus says, do you know, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe him? And Jesus said, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. You see, when this man sees God clearly, firstly, he recognizes who Jesus is. Now, it seems like an interesting, strange thing to say, but Jesus shows us who God is. So to see God clearly, we see who Jesus is clearly. I had a professor who would so often say, there is no God behind the back of Jesus. Essentially, what he meant was, if you look into the face of Jesus, you will see who God really is. You see, Jesus comes in and says, do you know who the Son of Man is? Do you believe in him? That's a loaded question, loaded concept. It was a term used by the Jews definitely in this time in the first century that was loaded with hope. The Son of Man was the Messiah, the rescuer, the Savior who was to come. And so what happens is he has this light bulb moment. Not only does he physically see, he spiritually sees. You are the Son of Man. You're the Messiah. You're the Savior we've been waiting for. It's you. Now, many of you have seen the film Hook, one of my favorites, probably in my top 10. And it's supposed to be a follow-on, if you don't know it, from the story of Peter Pan, where Peter Pan has got a job, he's away from Never Never Land, and he's forgotten who he is, and he's just caught up in his work. He's a workaholic. He's, He's forgotten about what really matters. And so his kids are then kidnapped by Captain Hook, and then Peter Pan finds himself back in Never Never Land, but he just doesn't remember who he is. And so everybody's encouraging him to remember, you've got to see who you are. Even Captain Hook doesn't seem to believe that this is Peter Pan. But then he remembers and he, he regains his, his, his ability to fly. Uh, he gets the lost boys on his team and they go to rescue his children. And then there's this moment where Captain Hook realizes that Peter Pan realizes who he is. And he responds, hey, it's you, my great and worthy opponent. You see, there's this moment where people begin to realize it it really is you. I can see it. I recognize it. I perceive it's you. You're real to me now. Isn't that what's happening in the story? There's this moment where the man who, who once didn't see, now sees, perceives who Jesus is. It's you. And that's what happens with spiritual sight. We see who Jesus is. We see he's our advocate, our, our alpha and omega. We see he's the author and the finisher of our faith, the bread of life, the chosen one, the chief cornerstone. We see he's our deliverer, our our Emmanuel, our great high priest. 
With spiritual sight, we see he's the king of nations, the lamb of God. He's the last Adam. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. We see he's our mediator, our Messiah. We see he's the prince of peace, our ransom and our redeemer. We see he is the root of Jesse. We see he is the son of the father. We see he is the true vine, the wonderful counselor. And he really is the word of life. We see who Jesus is. But there's something else. The second thing that happens here is that this man man then worships. The man who sees then worships Jesus. Highly controversial thing to be going on in this context. Another man worshiping a man. What's happening here? But you see, the man who now sees is confronted with God's character and his kindness. And this produces a worship in his life. He sees who Jesus is and he worships. Now, worship is, is when we see God rightly and then we value him properly. That's what's happening here. And the same happens to us. When we have the eyes to see who Jesus is, that means we're seeing God clearly. But it also causes this response where we see his worth and his value and it consumes the decisions of our lives. You see, what's amazing in this account, in this sign, is that he's given physical sight that makes, it causes him to be able to say, wow, look at that, he can see for the first time. But he's also given spiritual sight where he says, wow, look at who Jesus really is. You know, spiritual sight, it means we not only see who we are, we begin to see who God is too. And this man can now see. Now, you might be sitting there this morning thinking to yourself, well, I want to see, but I don't. Or I feel my sight has gone a bit misty. Maybe I should sing louder. Maybe I should try harder. Maybe I should work really hard on my own heart, and maybe then I can get it right. No, that's not the answer. The answer is you have to see something. You have to see who you really are, and you have to see who Jesus really is. And what better place to go to gain sight for that than to go to the cross? Now, you know on the cross... Remember, there was darkness across the land. But there wasn't just darkness on the land. There was darkness of what Jesus went through. Jesus walked through the pitch black valley of death, defeated it and came out on the other side. But why? Jesus went through that utter darkness to give us sight. Jesus went into that dark place of death to defeat it so that we might be filled with the light of the gospel. He did it for you. He he did it for me. You see, at the cross, we can find a spiritual sight. At the cross, we can see who we are, sinners in need of grace. And we see who God is and what he's done for us. We see the Son of God who has come to help us see. Now, Jesus came to give us eyes to see, to recognize who we are and who he is. He came to open eyes. Now remember how signs work. Signs point beyond themselves. Signs show us something, what's going underneath. They're making a point. So what we see is a man who was once blind, now healed. He gains his physical sight, and there's a miraculous healing. And there's so much good in that. But remember, this is saying something more. Jesus is making a massive statement. I can make you really and truly see. Jesus opens eyes. May we experience today the sight-giving work of Jesus in our lives. May we see 
what's true. And may we see that Jesus has come to give us sight. Well, I hope that throughout this service, you have been able to get a glimpse of Jesus this morning. Now, as we close, let me just read just one sentence that Jesus says in the previous chapter in John 8. Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So as we enter our weeks, may the Lord give us eyes to see him leading us like light. May he give us eyes to see Jesus clearly. And we love you. We are praying for you. If there's any way that we can be of help, we are here for you. But as we enter our weeks, may we know that peace. So go in peace, saints.